Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, Charlotte. Well, good morning. Uh, by the way, if you're a fourth through sixth grader and you've not yet gone to be with your class, we'd love to have you go do that at this time. Appreciate y'all being here with us this morning. My name is Tyler. I am uh, one of the pastors here. I specifically work with the worship ministry and, and also the uh, small group ministry, men's and women's Bible studies, and I'm part of the preaching rotation and really glad to be able to share with you today. Uh, Pastor Frank is at camp, which he is prone to do. Uh, he's been doing that for years, and he loves it, loves it. So ask him for lots of stories when he gets back. He'll be glad to tell you. Um, but we'll be continuing our, our series in the book of Colossians today. I do have one more announcement for us. Lots of things going on this summer. This last announcement is that uh, we have a thing here called Wednesdays at Arcadia. It's Wednesday nights, 7 to 7.45. Pastor Frank's been teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to continue that in the summer, but we did want to let you know that there's a segment, a segment of the summer that is going to be apportioned off uh, from June 15th to July 27th. That's going to be called the Kingdoms Study, and it's going to coordinate with our preaching series here uh, where we're covering the lives of Saul, David, and Solomon. And so we thought during that section of the summer, we would actually go through this Kingdoms Study. It's going to be 6.30 to 7.45 on Wednesdays, and uh, that's going to include some dinner and then some table discussion, short devotion. There's a sign-up for that in the back that we'd love to just let you uh, sign up so we know that you're coming and know about what to do with, with food. Uh, there's also some books in the back that you can uh, pick up, and there's a su suggested donation for that. Uh, but that's going to be led by Frank Switzer, uh, our lead pastor, uh, by Nick Oviedo, who's one of our elders, and by me. And so we'd love for you to come, particularly if your small groups are taking a break for the summer. It's a great thing to have your small group come on out to Wednesdays, 6.30 p.m. That's going to be starting June 15th. So we'd love to have you do that. Uh, we understand that there's many different kinds of people in this room. And so I just want to say thank you for being here today. Uh, read recently um, some studies on the nuns and duns, people who, uh, nuns are people who claim to have no religion at all. Uh, duns are people who uh, had been brought up uh, in, in a faith but are kind of done with that. Um, we understand that there are, in a room this size, there are many kinds of people uh, those that, that would claim to have a faith in Christ, those who would claim to have no faith at all, and claim, people who would be claim to be done with faith altogether. And if that's you, no matter which of those categories you fall into this morning, we're just very thankful that you're here with us. And uh, you've been through a lot these last few years. And I'm even just thinking this last few weeks of the things that have gone on in this world uh, that, that are pressing on your hearts and on your minds. And I just want to uh, thank you for being willing to be here with us in a season like this. We believe that the God who is described in this book uh, does have the answers for these questions. And so we're here today because we believe that Christ is our life and that in him is fullness of life, in him is joy in this life, even in the midst of the difficult things that we go through. So we're, we're glad that you're here with us today. 
In our house, uh, we have young kids. Uh, my daughter, Charlotte, who just read the scripture, uh, she's 11. We have a seven-year-old. We also have a three-year-old. Uh, we've spent a lot of time recently with things like crafts and, and uh, games and puzzles. And so as I was looking at this passage this week, I actually thought that the puzzle is a pretty good metaphor for what this passage is doing. And so you, each of you got received a puzzle piece on your seat today. And I would love for you to be able to uh, take this out for a moment. And a question that came to my mind in regard to this passage in Colossians 3 today, as well as the puzzle, is which is the most important piece of the puzzle? And I'm wondering which piece you guys think is the most important piece? Is it, is it the one you have? The one that's lost, the one that's missing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The first and the last. Very good, very good. Any other answers? Most important part, our piece in the puzzle? The corner pieces. Yeah, some of you love the corner pieces, right? There's all kinds of methods about how you might go about putting together a puzzle. And, uh, and which puzzle piece you think is the most important might depend on your method for how you want to put it together. And so there's all kinds of answers that you've just given. Uh, the corners, the outside edges, uh, different colors that are on the pieces so that you can group those together first. Uh, but I would submit to you that the most important piece of the puzzle is the puzzle's box. It's a trick question, it's a trick question. Because the box, the box actually gives you the image of what the whole thing is. Yeah? Have you ever tried to put together a puzzle without the box? It's the only way to do it. It's the only way to do it. Yeah, 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 that's right. Hey, look, you guys could get together. And by the way, I love that you're discussing today. If, you're, if your name is Jim or your name is Alan or your name is Courtney and you want to shout a hallelujah or an amen today, please feel free to, to do that. Um, I, I actually, part of the reason I love small groups is because we actually get to discuss together in that realm. Now, look. Teaching in a, in, a, in a church service is a slightly different thing than that, but I love the participation. And so let's have a conversation here together. The box, the box is the most important, important piece of the puzzle because it gives you the blueprint for what you're putting together, right? You might get together, and a few of you maybe will do this after the service, um, you might try to put your pieces together. You know, you meet a few friends that are sitting around you and you're, you're putting it. How many of you want to do that after the service today? Yeah, a few of you? A few of you? You already did. Some of you have it done already. Yeah, the Titus House guys, they've got it done already <laughs> over here. Their, whole, their section is all worked out. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what. We could do it that way, but it might be a little more frustrating. It might take a little bit longer. Uh, but that process would actually be pretty fun for some people. It'd be like hell for other people. <laughs> the most important part of the puzzle is this box because it gives you the image of what you're trying to put together. And I think in our passage today, one of the things that we have is we have this blueprint for what the body of Christ will look like. We have this image of being in glory with God, that God and his people will be together. We have this image of what that will look like one day. And I love that blueprint because we're sort of still here putting the puzzle together, aren't we? We've, we've, got, we've got a few pieces. Maybe we're missing some pieces. 
We're doing our best to put together the puzzle the way that we've seen, but God has given us a blueprint. He's given us an image of what this will look like, and we get to put that together based on the image that he's given us. He's not leaving, it, leaving us blind and putting this together without that image. So open up your Bibles, if you would. Colossians chapter 3. Now, if you're like me, the, the, the passage will be up on the screen here, but I'm nearly blind at this point. So there's an incentive to bring your own Bibles and take a look. Colossians chapter 3. It says, if... Okay, we'll stop there for now. <laughs> if... It's sort of like when you have therefore in the first part of the scripture and you, and, and you have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? The same thing here with this word if, and some translations say since. Paul opens this passage with if for a few different reasons. One is he wants you to have in mind everything that he's already said in the book up to this point. Keep in mind that this letter that Paul circulates would have been something that uh, you probably would read in one sitting with a group of people. You wouldn't necessarily do like what we do today where we, we read chapter 1 in our quiet time and then the next day we read chapter 2. Paul in, instead intended this to be a letter that would be read in one flow of thought, one, one sitting, and, and with other people, probably out loud. And so if is drawing your attention to all the things that have come before this. And I've just picked out seven, seven things that Paul wants us to remember as he goes forward in chapter 3. And the seven things are, are these. One, Christ is supreme. Supreme. Paul spent a lot of time earlier in Colossians working out this idea that, that Christ is above all and in all and through all. That he, as the creator of this world, has authority over creation. My littlest guy, um, Dallas, is starting to put sentences together, and it's really fun to see what he comes up with. But one of his favorites is that he now comes up to us, and he'll, he'll, no matter who he's talking to, Daddy, you're the best. Thanks, son. Appreciate that. And then a minute later, he'll go over, Mommy, you're the best. And then a minute later, he'll go over, Charlotte, you're the best. We can't all be the best. Who does this kid think he's fooling? But it warms my heart every time that he, that he says, Daddy, you're the best. What we learn from Christ is supreme in Paul's letter to the Colossians is that there's not any, anybody else who's in the category, even in the same category as Christ. That God is completely other than his creation. And as such, he has complete authority over creation. Truly, Christ is the best. And from the Christian standpoint, the Christian worldview, well, we would look at that and we would say there's not anything else in this life that could compete with who Christ is and what Christ has to offer. And many of us in this room have tried to see if other things could match up. And we've been left wanting because at the end of that path, we get disappointed. Christ is supreme. That's the first thing that Paul wants us to remember. Second, we've been rooted. Oh, Christ has, has reconciled with us. I was going to number three already. Christ has reconciled us. 
that this Christ who is supreme over the authority of the universe has brought us near by his grace and mercy, by the blood of the, of, shed on the cross. Now, hallelujah, I heard that hallelujah. Uh, Frank, Pastor Frank had actually um, mentioned this in the last couple of weeks, and I want to mention it again this morning. Reconciled has the implication that there was some distance. And so by nature in this word uh, reconciled, we have the understanding that we were once far from Christ, but that Christ has brought us near. And also you should be aware that in the Christian worldview, that reconciliation happens between God and humanity, but it also happens between humanity and humanity. Because what happened in the fall is that we were, uh, we were made distant from God and we were made distant from one another. And it's part of why we have all of the striving and the conflict and the war and the fighting that we do that goes on all over, even in our hearts. It's because that sin gets in the way not only between God and humanity, but between humanity and humanity. And so second thing that Paul wants us to know, if, if you have been reconciled, if you've been brought near to God and near to one another. The third thing, that Christ is, ah, it's number four. Christ has made known to us his mystery and his wisdom. Now, I love this because sometimes we tend to think that we have this Jesus thing all figured out, don't we? And we can study, and that's a good thing. And we can have doctrine, and that's a good thing. And we can have our, our, our interpretation, and that's a good thing. But we want to run into trouble when we think we have Christ so figured out that he'll never surprise us, that we can predict his every move, that we know exactly what he's going to do in any given situation. Now, how many of you have tried to see Christ that way and have been <laughs> surprised by what God will do? Anytime we think we know exactly what God's going to do, we can be assured that even in his faithfulness, there is a mystery to God that we can't quite comprehend. That we just don't quite see fully who this God is. He is both imminent, as close as, as, as the air that we breathe, and he is transcendent beyond anything we can imagine. And sometimes that mystery is something that we lose sight of in our efforts to understand. That as we work out our salvation, as we come to church week after week, as we do our Bible studies, in that understanding that we gain, which, is, which are all good, we sometimes lose the mystery, what's described as the mystery of faith and the mystery of godliness and the mystery of Christ. Paul, in the first couple of chapters of Colossians, has reminded us that this God who is supreme over creation is beyond our understanding as well. And there's a mystery of this faith walk that we have. But he's also given us wisdom, which means that not in the, in the midst of our, our, our mystery, God gives us wisdom to be able to navigate this life. The things that we're unclear on, the things that we don't quite know, the things that we're not sure how it'll turn out, the missing pieces of our puzzle. God gives us wisdom to be able to know that he has sovereign control over this world and that what we're working through and working out in the life of the church, by his spirit, he has given us the ability to navigate that. So Paul wants us to know, if, you have, you, if Christ is supreme, if Christ has reconciled us, if Christ has made known to you mystery and wisdom, 
There's going to be a then. You see where this is coming. Number four, that we are rooted in Christ. That must have been my favorite one because I was looking forward to it. In the opening chapters, Paul has said that we are rooted, we are established, we are firm. There is an anchor for us. I was talking with uh, uh, John Del Husay this, this past week. Uh, 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 he attends Redemption in Alhambra. And I was asking John, because John does a number of different things across the city, and I was asking John, how is it that you can do all of these things all at once? And he says, well, I have to have an anchor. And I thought to myself, well, that seems paradoxical, that to, in order to go here and go there and go there, you have, to ha you have an anchor? And he said, yeah, it's because I'm rooted in a particular time and space with God, and out of that comes all of this fruit. And I thought to myself, that's a perfect image for what Paul is describing in Colossians 3. That we are anchored in Christ, rooted in such a way that the fruit will spring out of us. No matter where God might call you. Number five, we're built up in him. That we are built up in Christ in such a way that having been anchored in him, that we are growing into maturity. You can see here how there's a little bit of a process that Paul is bringing us through. He's supreme. He's reconciled us. He's given us the mystery of faith. We've been rooted in him, and now we're growing up into Christ. There's a lot of ways that we can grow up. In Luke chapter 2, we're told that Jesus grew physically, spiritually, and in favor with God and in favor with men, Right? So, he, so, he, grew, so he, grew, he grew up in many different ways. And if Jesus had to grow up in those ways, well, that means we have to grow up in those ways as well. And so we want to grow up into Christ who is our head. Number six, we have died with Christ. Well, hold on. Up until this point, it was pretty good, right? Like, if I'm a, if I'm, if I'm a reader of Paul's letter and I'm thinking to myself, there are all these things, yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm rooted, I'm, I'm built up, a lot of thriving going on. We get to number six, and there's death. That's a difficult one for us, because none of us want to face our own death. In fact, you could say that our society is very much so doing everything it can to try to escape not only our own death, but any kind of pain that goes on in life. But Paul knows that part of this process for the blueprint the picture that we're getting to at the, at the end of all time, eternity with God. Part of, part of what Paul knows here is that part of that process is that we will have died with Christ. Now that with Christ is really important. There's no need to die needlessly or unnecessarily. But the Christian is called to die with Christ. To be crucified with Christ is how Paul will say it in another, in another place. And then next week we'll see in, in the passage that, that Paul asks us, uh, God asks us through the writing of Paul to put to death our old nature. The Christian is called to die with Christ. It, and you may not have to die the way that he died. Let's hope, let's hope you don't. But the Christian is called to put to death the old self, the things of the sinful nature. Now, for those of you nuns and duns that are in the room that think that we have to 
that are concerned with this idea of dying to ourself. Let, let, me, let me explain to you that on the other side of Good Friday comes Easter Sunday. L let me explain to you that in the, uh, the same language of being rooted and built up in Christ, there are plants that will die only to revive again the next season. That Christ in his creation has given us the very image of what this death and resurrection looks like. Now, that's what Redemption Church calls the J-curve. Many of you have heard us talking about that. That the Jesus curve, the J-curve is one of, of death and resurrection. And that there's an ultimate process that God brings us through as we die to ourselves and rise again in him. And then there are very many little processes where that happens as well, that each day I have to die to my own self in the things that I'm hoping for, that I need to put my preferences aside and seek what Christ wants for me instead. Paul has that in mind here as well. And so number seven is this, that we've also been raised with Christ. Hallelujah. Now, this is the one that Paul wants to focus on. So let's get back to Colossians 3, verse 1. If then, so we had our ifs, now we're going to have our then. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And so the first thing that Paul is going to say to us in this Colossians 3 passage is that we are to set our hearts on things above, or we are to seek the things above. And he says to us, if then you have been raised. So we know that there's something about this resurrection that Christ is going to focus in on. Something about us being born to new life that Paul, Paul wants to actually zero in on for us in this passage. I think to myself, if we truly understood our, our position as being raised in Christ, that it would change a lot of things for us. Many of us are still stuck in our old selves, the ways that Paul will say that we used to be. But rather, Paul wants us to understand that if you've been raised in Christ, we have a new identity, we have a new status. You can put on your social media status update, raised, hashtag raised, hashtag forgiven. Raised carries with it the connotation that we were dead, but now we're alive. Amen? And that we can live in this new status of having been raised with Christ. So Paul is saying, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Now that word seek is fascinating to me. Because seek has the, seek has the uh, implication, the way that the, the Greek word works there, is the implication that you're doing it continuously forever. This is part of why people go to seminary, people like Zach Hines who just graduated from seminary. People go to seminary because you, you study sort of what the connotation of the original language is. And that seeking continuously, that, that pursuing continuously for for all time, is a process that the, the Christian is called into, that I continuously am wanting to put before me the things that are above. Now, what is Paul talking about there, about the things that are above? Well, certainly, 
it's been ingrained in our mind that heaven is somewhere up there, right? That somewhere up there is heaven. Now, I'm not sure theologically if, if that's exactly accurate. But the seeking of the things that are above is the idea that we're viewing things from the perspective of heaven. That as Paul will say in Philippians, that our citizenship is in heaven and we await a savior from there. In other words, that's where we're already living. That's where we're already from. That the kingdom of God doesn't start in some day far off, but when you have been crucified with Christ and raised into new life in Christ, that the kingdom of God starts now for each of us. Today, this moment, and that already our citizenship is there. And so we seek the things that are happening in heaven. It's why Jesus prayed uh, during his time on earth that God may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That the things that are, God's will is already done in heaven. That's the blueprint. That's the image. There are people who are already gathered around, or there are angels and, angels and creatures already gathered around the throne of God, praising him 24-7, Right? That's the image. And Paul is wanting us to understand that if we seek those things, it'll have a profound impact on what this looks like here. And so we want that image to be reality with what God is doing here. And he mentions that Christ is there, seated at what? At the right hand of God. Now that, that phrase, the right hand of God, is, is an authority statement. It's another, just yet another way of describing that Christ's authority is above all. That he is integral to the plan of the Father, and that his authority is integral to carrying out the will of the Father. So Christ is sitting there, and the image is, is that we are all ready to seek things from that perspective. So Paul wants us to understand that we are going to be a people that set our hearts on those things. Other translations will say it this way. Other translations will say, set your affections on the things above. Now, I like that translation because all of us have desires, longings, affections that are intended to be able to be conformed to the heart of Christ. When you become a Christian, and this is, you can, you can read this in Ezekiel, and you can read this in Jeremiah. You can read this in Deuteronomy. You can read this in Matthew. When you become a Christian, God replaces your heart of stone, and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. He actually takes away your old heart, gives you a new heart. And that's mind-blowing to me that God is able to do that with even the hardest of hearts. Some of you in this room still feel like your heart is very hard today. Know the good news that God is able to replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh. We have some friends in this uh, church whose son has been going through, and you can look it up on Instagram, uh, his, their son has been going through a William Hart journey is the, is the tag, the handle going through a process with his heart where they've had to uh, be in and out of the hospital. And to see this little guy who is, who is just two years old, 
having to go in and out of the, the, the hospital with an operation on the heart has been just absolutely devastating. And, and for us that are, fr are friends of theirs, it has crushed our hearts to see his heart going through this. We rest assured that this God who has created the universe is not caught by surprise by William's heart trouble, is not unable to bring William's heart trouble to the appropriate end, which we pray will be eternity with Christ. But in Scripture, this heart issue is something that affects each of us deeply. It's what you long for the most. It's what drives you. And to watch our friends have to go through this cannot help but grieve our hearts also. And it struck me this week that as, as Paul is asking us to put our affections on the things above, that what Paul is getting at is that our hearts ought to be moved by the things that move God's heart. So that when we see things that are going on in this world, we want to have a heart that is in step with what God's heart is for that issue. That the things that grieve him would grieve us as well. So I just want you to say, as a participation again, God, move my heart for what moves yours. Would you say that? God, move my heart for what moves yours. That our hearts would be drawn together with God's. Now, how do we do that? Romans tells us that God regularly pours out his love into our hearts. Isn't that amazing? That God, by his spirit, is regularly, regularly pouring his love into our hearts. What an amazing truth. Do we believe it? Do we actually think that God has the ability to do that in our hearts and your heart? The hearts of those that have not yet found him? Are our hearts moved by the desire that people's hearts would be moved by God's heart? Paul is asking us to set our hearts on those things above. The second thing that he's asking us is that our minds would be moved as well. This is verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Amazing again that Paul has actually repeated this death that we've gone through. But all equally amazing to me that, that Paul is, understands that we aren't just our hearts that he has to cover his bases here in the passage. Now, why would, he, why would he have to cover his bases? I think it's because God knows that too many of us give pieces of ourselves to God. That we're content with knowing a lot of things about him. God, I've given you my mind. I'm going to memorize your verses. But my heart is what? Far from you. Or vice versa, that God knows that our hearts, we might want something a lot, but we haven't followed through yet with our mind or with our bodies. Paul's addressing all three of these things in this passage because he knows we are prone to giving God pieces of ourselves. God, today I will give you my mind, tomorrow I'll give you my heart, next week I'll think about giving you my hands. Anybody resonate? 
Nobody. It's just me. Chief of sinners. Chief of sinners up here. That we oftentimes will give God little pieces of ourselves. And I think part of what Paul is getting after here is that God doesn't want just our hearts. He doesn't want just our minds. He doesn't want just our hands. But he wants the whole you. He wants the whole you. He doesn't want just pieces of you. And so Paul, after saying, let's give our hearts, is going to say, set your minds on things above as well. Now, there's all kinds of fascinating things that have been done now in this study of neuroscience by Christians who understand the truths that are here in our Colossians passage that are studying the the neuroscience about behavior and how we think. There's a guy named Kurt Thompson, no relation at all, but has written a book called Anatomy of the Soul. And Kurt Thompson, in Anatomy of the Soul, talks about how God has designed the mind so that it can be renewed and transformed. Isn't that amazing? They say that you can actually form new neuropathways in your brain. That you can rewire your brain. Now, if you've ever been through any kind of addiction process, you know this to be true. That an addiction creates little physical ruts in your brain that you actually just fall into over and over and over and over and over again. And that you can't get out of it by yourself. You can get out of it with help from God's spirit and from others that are going to help you rewire your brain. And so they've done all kinds of study on this. So when we get to this kind of a passage from Paul, where in in verse 2 here he says, set your mind on things above, that word set is again that continual, constant, forever approach. That for all time we are going to be renewing our minds. So when Paul also gets uh, to Romans 12, And he said, therefore, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The depth of of scientific and psychological wisdom that is in that one verse is is absolutely mind-blowing. He's saying that we can, by God's help, be transformed by our minds being renewed in Christ. And with that, Paul is also saying, your mind... Just real quick, your is plural, mind is singular. So the mind that God is asking us to be renewed with is one that will conform to Christ's mind. He's asking our minds to be conformed to the image of Christ's mind. What do we get there? We get that we're going to have hearts that look like his and minds that look like his. And so it's why Paul will focus in other places on whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is lovely, think about these things. Because he knows that our minds are prone to wander and think about other things. Now, how many of you have ever tried to focus your mind on a thing just to be distracted by all sorts of other things that God doesn't want you to be thinking about? I'm asking you to be really honest now. Not like a minute ago where nobody raised their hands. We want our minds to be focused on Christ. And it's also why Paul will say, I try so much to do one thing, and yet I hear I am doing this other thing. Because our minds need that constant renewal, that constant renewing by God's spirit, that constant renewing by God's word. People will actually become more like what they think about. Did you know that? 
And so it's why John Piper says that the most important thing about you is what you think about God. Because you become more like God when you think about God. We become more lovely and pure and noble and trustworthy as we think about those sorts of things. And the truth is that the opposite is also the case. Tyler James is going to talk next week, in the, in our, later in our passage in Colossians 3, about what a different mindset looks like. Because the things that we think, James Emory, James Emory White says this, the things that we view quickly become the things that we do. Think about that again. The things that we view quickly become the things that we do. So we want to be really careful what we put before our eyes and what we put in our minds. That the things that we are thinking about have the ability by God's spirit to renew and transform us. Third point here is that he's asking us to set Christ as our very lives. And so in verse 4, he says this, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I love the way that Paul ends this passage. Not only are we going to set our hearts on him, not only are we going to set our minds on him, but we're going to actually understand that Christ is our very life. That he's the whole sum total of what we are. It doesn't work for us just to give pieces. It's why in Deuteronomy 6 it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. At least that's how Jesus quoted it in Matthew. That our whole selves are going to be dedicated towards this reflecting of Jesus. So Christ, who is your life, appears. Now that word appears is interesting. It means to be made clear. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that when Christ is made clear, then you will also be made clear. Isn't that fascinating? When Christ, at the end of time, appears and is made clear to us, remember, we only see in part now, and we'll talk about that in a minute. When Christ is made clear, we also will be made clear. Now, this is a really important statement. Because some of us think that in order to become more like Christ, we need to become less like ourselves. And in fact, we think that when we die to ourselves, when we get rid of all those things, those secrets and those behaviors and those ways of thinking, that we're actually becoming less like us so that we can become more like Jesus. And actually, part of what keeps people from giving their lives to Jesus is this point. They think that they have to become something they're not in order to follow Jesus. But biblically here, what Paul is saying is that the more we become like Jesus, the more we become like ourselves. That as Jesus is made clear, we too are made clear. That as we become more like God's Son, that we become more fully ourselves as well. That's good news. And we know that because Christ himself became human to show us what the true humanity was. None of us were fully human in the way that Christ is. Do you get that? 
that Christ himself shows us the model of what it means to be truly human. And so as we become more like him, we become more authentically us, too. As his life becomes more our life, we look more like him and like ourselves. Like each of you. And so we get presented in glory as us. Yes, little Christs, but us. When we get there with Jesus, this is the blueprint, and Jesus is presented in all his glory, we're presented with him in glory. And there's all kinds of passages that talk about how the church is the glory reflected of Jesus. That our bodies will be transformed, our lowly bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious body. And so when we're presented with Jesus in heaven, what do you think that that looks like? Are we just disembodied hearts? Disembodied minds? No, it's, it's you. It's the Dufresnes, and it's the Durkins, and it's the Ponces. It's you guys in heaven looking a lot like you and looking a lot like Jesus. And I'm thankful for that. So when we appear in glory, we appear in glory, we will have hearts that look like Jesus and you. We'll have minds that look like Jesus and you. We will have bodies that look like Jesus and you. And that's the picture that we get in Colossians 3. Not to mention the book of Revelation and all the other places that talk about this glorious bride of Christ being presented with Christ in glory. I was talking with some friends about this last night. We were at a dinner for Ben Bear, who's getting married in a couple of weeks. And I was amazed, having been studying Colossians 3 this week, at how many things were sort of outworked in this dinner that we had. That Christ's message about our head and our hearts and our minds and our hands was, was coming out and being revealed through the body of Christ at that dinner table. That as we hugged Ben and, and saw him come to tears about the goodness of God in his life as expressed by the other guys around the table. That we recognize that God has made us whole selves where our hearts and our minds and our hands are actually made better by this process of dying and rising with Christ. That it's actually good for us. Any of the things that we have to give up in order to set our minds above weren't worth holding on to anyway. And we thought that that dinner table actually was a foreshadowing of what we're going to have one day with Christ. That one day we're all going to sit around the marriage supper of the Lamb. Feasting. It's not going to be fake food. It's going to be real food. It's not going to be spiritual food. It's not going to be food that you long for in your heart or food that you hope, hope will, sounds good in your mind. It's food that you're going to put in your mouth. That God intends to take care of every aspect of our lives 
and transform it into the glory that is his. But we have to keep the big picture in mind. Because some of us get caught on our own things. Some of us hold on to our pieces and think, I wish my peace looked like his, or I wish my peace looked like hers. And we go a couple of different ways with this. We think to ourselves, my peace is the most important piece in the puzzle. You guys are nothing without my peace. Or by contrast, we think to ourselves, my peace doesn't even belong in this puzzle. It's not good enough to be there. And by our pride or depravity, or by our pride or by our despair, we miss it entirely, which is this, that God intends for you to be just who you are, which is that piece in the puzzle that he has designed you to be. Amen? And we get to live in this life now where it's now and not yet. It sort of looks like what's coming, but not quite there yet. And so we do the best that we can. We put our puzzle pieces together. Sometimes we need to take a look at the box again to know what the picture is that God is building us into. But we do the best that we can in the process. Now I want to close with one more thing. It was a lunar eclipse this last week. Lunar eclipse, yeah? And I went out and I took a picture of it. And I thought to myself, I'm going to get a really good picture of this lunar eclipse. And so I got my iPhone 7, and I went out there, <laughs> and I took a picture of the best picture of the lunar eclipse that I could. And it looked kind of like this. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's pretty, it's pretty good, right? Hey, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I thought it was cool. There's like a tree there. It's a little art artsy, right? And, and you at least can see that there's, the, there's an eclipse going on. There's a blood moon. There's the, the, there's the red, right? Not too bad. And then afterwards, I went and I looked for like real pictures that people took on the internet, and it looked like this. It's a little more clear. A little more professional. But I thought to myself, that's what this is like. I can be trying the best that I possibly can to reflect the glory of this event and doing everything in my power. And even at the end of the day, it's not going to be close to what we're going to experience with God in heaven. Isn't that beautiful? And it's going to be far beyond anything that we we understand or see the greatest thing, the, the eclipse, the Grand Canyon, the things that we can see. Even if the Suns had won a championship, <laughs> God's glory would be better than that. Some of you still have broken hearts. I want to wrap by saying this, that many of you, in your attempts, and I'm this way too, in our attempts to either by doing everything right or by running from God and not doing any of the things we should, we've missed entirely that God's glory is above everything that we can ask and imagine. Now, this is the picture of the puzzle that you have. What is it? You guys know what it is? Are you telling me you in the back can't see what this is? It's the Last Supper of Jesus. How many of you knew that's what it was going to be? Yeah, that's pretty smart. Very good. We are looking at this feast for eternity with Jesus. 
He gave us a model of it with his last, last Supper with the disciples. Jesus not only is the creator of the puzzle, he stepped into the puzzle himself. He became a piece of the puzzle that points us to the picture that we're going to experience all one day. But some of it is proximity. Those of you in the first few rows have a better picture of what this looks like than those of you that are in the back rows. I'm not saying anything about where you're sitting. I'm just saying, the closer that we get with Christ, the greater that we see this picture of what he's intended his church to be. And as we give our hearts and our minds and our hands to him, he transforms us into that image little by little, and he will be faithful to complete it. We sang it earlier today. He is faithful to complete the things that he has started in each of you. May you give yourself to him in that effort, even today as we take communion. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much that you have made a blueprint so that we can see what it is that you are transforming us into being. God, we praise you that not only are we becoming more like you, but we are becoming more fully ourselves in that process. God, we praise you that you take little simple things like bread and, and wine and you use them for extraordinary purposes in our lives. That we remember that you've given your very body and your very blood for us that we might be crucified with Christ and raised again with you. So God, I pray that, that there would be people in this room that maybe even for the first time would reach out to you in prayer and accept the good news that you have for our lives. That, God, you did die on the cross and rise again on the third day. So we pray, Lord, that there would be people in this room who would pray even now to receive you. And, God, I pray that your spirit would transform not only them, but each in this room, Lord, who is with Christ. And that as we walk with you in your company through this life, that, God, you would be glorified in us, your church. Help our hearts and our minds and our hands to look more like you each day as you conform us into the image of Christ. God, I pray now as we respond and we worship you, as we take communion, that you'd be glorified in this, that you'd use it for your purposes in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Oh 
Sacrifice was made as the heavens roared.
Well, we have a two-part, come on up here, Tyler. The Tylers, the Tylers have a two-part benediction for you today. Uh, the first part is, and we have a slide for this, Chuck, if you wouldn't mind putting it up. Uh, this is Kevin DeYoung, and he says this, if I had to summarize New Testament ethics in one sentence, here's how I would put it. Be who you are. Now, that may sound heretical, given our culture's emphasis on being true to yourself, but like so many of the worst errors in the world, this one represents a truth powerfully perverted. When people say, relax, you were born that way, or quit trying to be something you're not and just be the real you, they're saying, they're stumbling upon something very biblical. God does, does want you to be the real you. He does want you to be true to yourself. But the you he's talking about is the you that you are by grace, not by nature. You may want to read that last sentence again because the difference, it's the difference between living in sin and living in righteousness. It depends on getting the last sentence right. God doesn't say, relax, you were born this way, but he does say, good news, you were reborn another way. Amen. Amen. That's so funny. It goes so perfectly with this passage I was going to read. This is our benediction from 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. And this is the commissioning, sending verse for us for today. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, that's what God's grace gives us, so that you may abound in every good work. Redemption Arcadia, thank you for gathering together. Go in peace. Go live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week. <laughs>